Okay, uh, well, we have um, started last week with the Bible right at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, and now today we go right to the end. And there's a common theme between the beginning and the end of the Bible. It is heaven and earth. It begins with God creating the heavens and the earth, and it ends with him restoring and redeeming the heaven and the earth. Now, if we could put the slide up, please, uh, Steve. Thank you very much. Hopefully, with the new battery, it's going to work. I don't know if you... How many... um, Oh, I've already told you. (laughs) Book of Isaiah... Oh, I was going to drop the quiz there. Uh, The book of Isaiah is the longest prophecy in the Bible. It's got 66 chapters. Uh, Let's just have a look through the the broad uh, theme of it. It begins with this statement. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there are warnings and promises about uh, promises of what God will do and warnings about what, we, what God will do if we disobey him throughout the book. And then in chapter 39, we read the account of the destruction of Jerusalem. So um, let's again move on to the next chapter. In, verse, in chapter 40, we have the message of comfort, one calling in the desert, comfort my people, make way for God to come. And then in chapters 52 and 53, the wonderful passages of the, uh, of the suffering servant who will come and give his life on behalf of other people to redeem them. And then in chapter 65, we have uh, the new heavens and the new earth, that vision of what restored creation will look like. Uh, the Bible, how many books? 66. Okay, how many books in the Old Testament? 39, and that leaves 27 in the new. So let's just have a look how the Bible goes. Um, Begins with Genesis 1, creation of the heavens and the earth, that's parallel. Uh, The Bible uh, contains warnings and promises all the way through, right? There's lots of prophets and and the judges and all sorts of people who who came um, to give us God's word. Um, They... The Bible talks about how eventually, because God's people disobeyed him and ignored him, they went into exile and the the city of Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. It ends up in destruction. But the Old Testament uh, ends with a message of hope. Does anyone know what the last word in the Old Testament is? The very last word. Curse. The very last word is a curse. But the very last book in the Old Testament, the Malachi, bring, uh, talks about suddenly uh, the, the, the God will appear in the temple. That, that he will, so it lends with a message of hope, but it also with, with a word of warning, curse. Uh, and then in the New Testament, uh, at, um, the, the 40th book, if you like, of the Bible, begins with John the Baptist, the one who was prophesied in Isaiah to come with this message of comfort and preparation. Of course, the New Testament is all about Jesus Christ, him crucified, how through him God is redeeming creation. And it ends with a revelation of the new heaven and the new earth. I just think that's interesting, that the the book of Isaiah is a little microcosm of the whole Bible, and uh, it links in with what we're going to be thinking about today. Um, But let me just say, as I said last week, the beginnings 
and the endings are the two most controversial things in Christian theology. More churches have fallen out about beginnings and endings uh, and, uh, and, uh, than, than they have about anything else. Uh, but, you know, we're going to have a look at what the scripture says and, and we're all going to be friends at the end. Even if we disagree and, uh, you know, you're, f- you're very welcome to come and, and say, I, I don't agree with that or I don't understand that or, uh, and I've already um, got some conversations lined up, which is good. I think we should be able to do that. So let's, um, let's go back to try to see And this is always important. When you read the Bible, you need to try to understand it in the way that the people understood it for whom it was written in the first place. So the Bible goes back to before 1000 BC, uh, well before then, uh, and uh, up to about 100 AD, something like that. It covers a huge uh, span. How did the people of that time understand the notion of heaven and earth. Well, they knew that there were heavens and there was an earth. Uh, they'd never seen that picture, by the way. <laughs> um, but they knew that there were heavens and they knew that it was earth. Um, but how did they view them? Well, the Bible talks about, especially the Old Testament talks about, the fact that heaven is, is, is a layered thing. There were different, the word heavens could mean different things to us. Um, so the 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 first level, the lowest level of heaven, is where you get the clouds and the thunder. Uh, the, um, in Job 35, it talks about that heaven. Um, what would we call that? Well, we could call it the sky, we call it the atmosphere. The atmosphere is where all our weather comes from, um, and um, it's all in the bit that's got oxygen in it, so... The clouds and thunder belong to what we call the atmosphere. That's the lowest level of heaven in the Old Testament. Um, The sun, moon and stars also live in heaven. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, What do we call the the place where the sun, moon and stars live? Space. Space. Yeah, space. That is uh, where beyond the atmosphere, that's where all the heavenly planets and and things are. Uh, And... um, Then there's another layer above that. Uh, Angels. Do you believe in angels? Yeah, yeah. Angels uh, are there. Uh, They're a kind of in a spiritual realm of heaven. It talks about them in 2 Corinthians 12. And Paul talks about going to the third heaven where he saw this incredible vision. So Paul uh, experienced heaven in in a sense of a spiritual place of heaven. And there's one more layer of heaven, which is... The final frontier. No, that's Star Wars, I think. Um, (laughs) Well, that's interesting, actually, because the first uh, man in space was Yuri Gagarin. And when he went into space, he looked out, and what did he say? See, there is no God. We can't see him. You know, someone there who had been... um, uh, indoctrinated into the Russian atheist kind of, uh, humanist kind of philosophy, he said, no, I can't see God, he, he's not there, it's all, it's all, all a fallacy. Uh, whereas Neil Armstrong, of course, is a, is a Christian, he was the first man to walk on the moon. Uh, and they, wow. So anyway, though, the, the highest heaven is where God lives. So that word heaven, um, which uh, can mean a, a whole lot of different things, and the, the, the important thing is, heaven ultimately is where God lives. 
But in terms of the ancient way of thinking, we look at the heavens, we're looking at the atmosphere, space, the spiritual heavens. And, uh, and then we have, of course, below the earth, but we also have something below the earth. And this is referred to in the Old Testament very often as Sheol. Sheol, the place of darkness, uh, the underworld. Uh, it also refers to the sea. It refers to a grave. Uh, anywhere which is dark and associated with death. Uh, and this whole idea, I mean, there's no, um, there's no kind of structured understanding of life beyond death in the Old Testament. I think I'll have a, might, might be able to disagree on that. But, uh, but th- it was just you died and you went to Sheol. There doesn't appear to be much in the Old Testament, although you can find, of course, New Testament stuff in there. Um, The place of the underworld. So, um, that's basically it. You've got heaven, uh, 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 the different layers of heaven, you've got the earth, and then down below, you've got hell hell, uh, or or Sheol. Okay, where's the best vantage point to actually get a good view of all of those layers? Heaven? Heaven? Yeah, possibly. Well, I'd like to suggest it's the sun, okay? Um, I, I, think, <laughs> I think the sun is a good place to see all those layers. Um, particularly, this, this particular copy of the sun, um, it, it was published on Wednesday, November the 20th, 1991. Now, can anyone tell me what the headline was in the sun on November the 20th, 1991? Sorry? Uh, no, 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 not, nothing political actually. Well, I'll, I'll show you. I've actually got a copy of this. Here we go. Uh, this, this was uh, the headline. This postcard saved me. Um, it gave weight, new hope in his hellhole. Now, you will, you'll be aware that, uh, ter- I think you all know, yes, the children wouldn't have known this because it's a long time ago. Uh, but Terry Waite, the Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy, do you not remember it? Yeah, you were you were ten. Oh, okay. Well, it was a bit. It was it was a big story, and um, Terry Waite was the Archbishop envoy for Archbishop of Canterbury's envoy in the Middle East, and he'd been going on peace and kind of he'd been negotiating between all the different armed groups in Lebanon, and it was a dreadful, dreadful, dangerous situation. And then eventually he got kidnapped. And uh, for five years, no one knew where he was, and he was hidden from place to place. He was put in tubes under lorries and driven from one place to another. And uh, I've met Terry Waite. If you think I'm big, he is massive. He's six foot seven, and he has size 15 shoes. Um, He's a big guy. And for five years, uh, no one knew where he was. And then eventually, uh, he was released by uh, Hezbollah, And um, when he came out, he said, the only communication from the outside world I had um, was from one lady who sent me a postcard. It was addressed, Terry Waite, care of Hezbollah, Beirut. And it got there. That was the only communication that he had. Uh, And this is the postcard. This is the postcard of, uh, and you can see, it's a postcard of John Bunyan, uh, which is very appropriate because in April we, we've got uh, the Oddments Theatre Company coming to do uh, a performance of his uh, story, 
Pilgrim's Progress. And the, the school, um, Corrie Rival School, are, are, are delighted that we're going to put it on there as well as the evening here. So that's uh, really good. And here he is. This is uh, um, in Bunyan Meeting Church in Bedford. Uh, and this window was done for the tercentenary of Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, I was particularly excited to see this because I knew that on the back of this card it says photo by Laurie Byrne. Um, so I, I kind of wrote some discreet letters to all these newspapers who had published my picture on their front page and pointed out that it was my copyright and uh, got £800 for the church building fund. So that was good. Um, but the important thing was uh, this, this postcard gave... Terry Waite hope. The postcard gave him hope for two reasons. One, that somebody had thought about him and sent him a card. The lady who sent it was a lady called Joy Brodia, who went to Brickhill Baptist Church in, in, in Bristol. We didn't know her at the time, but we do now. And um, the only communication that he had, that the world had not forgotten him. Isn't that incredible? Um, the other reason is the picture of John Bunyan is actually in his prison cell in Bedford, writing the Pilgrim's Progress. That's the picture. And uh, in, in this cell, uh, he's looking out the window, and Terry Waite said, you're a lucky man, Bunyan. You've got a window to look out of. You know? Uh, and um, let's just have a look out this window. There's the postcard. <coughs> And there's the window. What's Bunyan looking at out of the window? It's the celestial city. It's Pilgrim's journey to uh, the celestial city. In other words, the new, the new creation, the new, new Jerusalem, which is, is um, Pilgrim's journey. He starts off by having his sins rolling off when, he, when, he, uh, when his burden rolls away and Jesus forgives him. And then the whole book is about his pilgrimage up to the... And he's always looking at what is beyond. The set. And that gave Terry Waite hope. And uh, in sun, typical tabloid sun language, gave Waite, Terry Waite new hope in his hellhole. Mm. Well, um, he understood a bit about what hell, hell on earth was like, you see. Um, John Wesley was visiting Marshalsea Prison in 1753, and he wrote in his journal, Oh, shame to man that there should be, should be such a place, such a picture of hell on earth. So if I were to ask you where hell and heaven are, well, actually, both of them are on earth. Where evil is... If you were to go to Yemen now, I think you would say, this is hell. Well, if you were in Syria you would think hell is here. But wherever Jesus puts his footprints, wherever Christians are bringing, uh, through God is bringing through Christians, the light of the kingdom on earth, heaven is here on earth. You may disagree, but I, I, would, uh, I would argue that both heaven and hell are uh, on earth. Now, this new creation, this new city, why do we believe in it? The answer is because the Bible promises it. Jesus promises it. The whole Bible points towards uh, a new creation. And um, I'm going to just read a little bit from uh, this book, which is uh, called The God of Hope and the End of the World. I don't know if anyone's read it, but it's by John Polkinghorne, 
who is both an Anglican priest and he um, is uh, a former professor of mathematical physics at Cambridge and a professor of systematic theology at Heidelberg. Um, so, you know, you're talking about quite a clever guy here. Uh, and he's written this book all about uh, the fact that he says this. From, from a, he comes to four conclusions. If the universe is a creation, which he believes it is, it must make sense everlastingly, and so ultimately it must be redeemed from transience and decay. So there's a, a, a scientist saying, logically, if a creator has made this earth, he must have a plan for its future. No supreme creator would have made something which had no future and no hope. Agree? Do you agree? Yeah. The question is, uh, when and how will the creator redeem uh, all this creation? Well, the simple answer is this. The kingdom of God is already here. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is among you. Did he not? The kingdom of God is already here, but not yet. Now, but not yet. Um, not in its fullness. Uh, when did the new creation start? When did the kingdom really start to come? When Jesus came? Yeah. And uh, he walked and he talked about the kingdom. He told parables. Wherever he came, he brought healing. He brought uh, amazing things. Uh, but the actual new creation began on one special moment. The resurrection. Yeah. When Jesus rose from the dead, uh, I mean, it could have been the end. If Jesus had not risen from the dead uh, and had rotted in the tomb, that would have been the end of the story. But it isn't, because Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. The new creation began when Jesus, the creator, rose from the dead. Um, so what will the new creation be like when it comes? Let's listen to what John Polkinghorne says again. Um, if human beings are creatures loved by their creator, they must have a destiny beyond their deaths. Insofar as present human imagination can articulate, I'll say, eschatological, that means things of the future, it, um, it has to do with the tension between continuity and discontinuity. What he's saying is our imagination is limited. Human beings can only imagine a certain amount, but there's going to be some continuity with what went before, but something different to what went before. Um, when Jesus rose from the dead, was it the same person? Yes. Yeah. Was he the same as he was before? Yes and no. In some ways, he was the same, wasn't he? They recognised him, eventually, uh, he ate food with them. Uh, he knew who they were. He called them by name. But in other ways, he was radically different. His body, uh, his body could go through walls. Yeah, but on the other hand, he said, reach out and touch me. He touched me. What was in his hands? The scars. So in, in some senses, Jesus was the same as he was uh, before the resurrection, but after he was radically transformed into something new. The new creation had begun. Now, the, 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 the clues for this lie in this passage in 
Uh, Revelation 21. We got to Revelation. Here we go. I won't be very long. Um, the, oh, oh! I've got a shield bug. Isn't that beautiful? Just as I start speaking about the new creation, um, a shield bug has just come and landed on my on my Bible. Isn't that wonderful? Look at that. Gorgeous. Oh, you just you just stay there. Okay. You're a very good illustration. Okay. Um, um, a, a new heaven. Let me read. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Okay, that's in Revelation 21, verse 1. Um, now, the question I, I, I'm interested in is actually what words are used here. Because the word new is used twice. Uh, and you might be interested to know there are two words in Greek for new. One of them is neos, and it means something which is new in age. Sort of new in, new in age, it hasn't been around very long. The other word, kainos, means refreshed renewed, refurbished. Now, I think that's very, very significant. Um, I'm not a Greek scholar, um, but uh, the fact that the new heaven is, is refurbished and f- refreshed and renewed rather than brand new, something else magicked up to replace the old one. Now, in, in, our, in our kind of um, thinking... If something breaks, what do you do? You try to mend it. Well, I don't think people do, actually. Uh, I think a lot of people, if it breaks, chuck it away and buy a new one. (laughs) It is. So a lot of Jesus' parables would not have made sense to a modern generation. What does a soldier do if his cloak is torn? He goes to the barracks and gets a new one, surely. No, he mends it. Yeah? That's, that's the thinking. Uh, so uh, God is a God who, who renews and mends things. So let's have a look at the, what this new uh, world might be like. It, it's a transformed earth. The heaven and the earth are transformed. There are certain, it's like the old, but in some ways it's radically different. Uh, there's no sea. That will disappoint Paul. He's, he, he likes sailing boats. I like swimming in the sea. Um, that's a bit disappointing, isn't it? Um, that the new heavens and earth are not going to have any sea. Well, I think it's symbolic. And, and I think this, in the beginning, what did I say Sheol is represented by? It's the sea is a place where people drown and die. So they, they drown and, and it's a place of death. Um, the sea is very dangerous. And when we looked at the story of creation... The first day, he separates light and dark. The second day, he separates the sea and the sky. But he doesn't pronounce it good until after day three, when he separates the land from the sea. Check that out. A world without land and sea would not be good unless you were a fish. Yeah? Fish wouldn't mind, but we do. Uh, And so, um, in, in the new creation uh, symbolically there is no sea and the other thing is about sea it represents death you can drown in it what does it do to the nations separates the nations the oceans divide nations in the new creation there's not going to be lots of different nations there's going to be one nation under god won't that be great no politics yes 
We won't need a European Union or a United Kingdom. We will be a united nation under God. Uh, there's no sun in the new creation. Why not? You don't need the sun because Jesus is the light of the world. The Lord their God will be their light. Um, there's no temple in the new city. Oh, sorry, shield bug, I just crashed you. Oh, still there. Still listening to this sermon very intently. Um, there's, there's, oh, here we are. Yeah, there's no temple. Why don't you need a temple? Jesus is the temple, and we are the temple. Our bodies are the temple, and we are the temple. So you don't need a temple, because God uh, and his people, uh, you don't have to go to a holy place to find holy God, because he's actually there. Now, the next one. No more death, mourning, or pain. How would you like all this wonderful creation without all the bad bits? Yeah. Take away all the bad bits of creation, like death and things, and you're left with something all good. At the moment, there's wonderful things in creation, but we also have these things, death, mourning, and pain. Well, the new creation, we're promised there will be no more. Beauty restored. In, in, the picture uh, of the... Yeah, even you'll be beautiful, Pete. That's yeah. what I just Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when you look at our creation, it is absolutely beautiful. We are wrecking it uh, in, at, a, at, a, at a vast rate. But actually, the beauty of creation will be restored. Um, that's of the creatures and the new earth. Okay. Um, restored harmony of creation... Genesis chapter 2, which we'll look at next week, is about relationships between God and uh, people, and people and animals. It's all there in Genesis chapter 2. But those relationships have been broken by sin. But in the new creation, there's going to be a restored harmony. And think about Isaiah chapter 65. In the new creation, the wolf will lie down with the lamb. Yeah? Yeah? And the little child will sit near the hole of a viper and won't get bitten. There's this picture, uh, you know, one of the difficult questions your children ask you when you grow up, when they grow up is, uh, will my cat be in heaven? Now, I don't know the answer to that question, except to say that the new creation is the restored whole creation. It is not just going to be a place where human beings sit round on a harp and uh, we, we, on, an, on a cloud. And, and it, it does talk about the, the restored harmony of all creation in this image. I don't understand that, um, but it's bigger than we sometimes make the new creation out to be. Um, God wipes their eyes. These people that have got there have been through tribulation and trial and pain and, and martyrdom, many people. And they come to the new creation and God wipes their eyes. And that is very significant because in the rest of Revelation, when God wants to um, minister to people, he sends an angel to do it. But here in the new creation, he comes himself as a father and he wipes their eyes. I think that's wonderful. God himself wipes their eyes. There will be no more tears. And we're nearly there. God and humans live together. Now, when we started out, we had that picture uh, of the earth, that's where we live, and the highest heaven, where God lives. And there's a vast gulf between those, isn't there? 
But actually, in the new creation, uh, notice very carefully, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah promises new heavens, but actually in Revelation it is singular. There is only one heaven and one earth, and they're the same place. The place where God lives and the place where humans live are the same. Now, I know lots of you have got loads of questions about what happens between now and then. I haven't got a clue. I don't know. I, I don't profess. But I'm just telling you, looking at that window that Bunyan was staring at, the celestial city, this is what we are looking towards. A renewed heaven and a renewed earth. Heaven is a place on earth. Where God's kingdom comes, heaven is here. And in the Lord's Prayer, we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Now, Lord. Uh, I was watching uh, a David Attenborough program just yesterday, I think it was, and he was in Madagascar which is one of the most beautiful and biologically diverse countries in the world, with all the lemurs and all that kind of stuff. But they're, they're cutting all the forest down, because people are poor and they need to get wood. But he talked to these people, and, and, and this small group of people have now planted a million new trees. And because they've taught them to put these little silkworms in, the people can now go and harvest the silk and make a living so they're not poor anymore, so they don't cut the trees down anymore. Uh, now, we're not talking about necessarily a Christian-inspired project, but I think I can see some restoration and some, some uh, renewed creation going on in that kind of thing. And the story I told you about, uh, about Arosha, um, we have a responsibility to be part of this. It's not something that God is simply going to do by magic at the end. He wants us to be involved in that process. That's why he calls us. Now, I've nearly finished. In 2003, I went on my sabbatical, and and right at the beginning, I I sat down for the first evening in the ship inn in Lindisfarne, uh, Holy Island, uh, where I was going to spend a couple of weeks. So I was away from my family. Uh, I... I, I, um, I went into this pub, ordered my fish and chips, and I, and I sat down at, at the pub, uh, owned my fish and chips, didn't know anybody. Somebody came up and pressed the jukebox. Now, I was about to study in my sabbatical being citizens of heaven and stewards of the earth. This is what came up on the jukebox. Ooh, baby, do you know that's what? Ooh, heaven is a place on earth. Uh, Belinda Carlisle, uh, I wasn't even that familiar with the song, but uh, isn't that amazing? We love will make heaven a place on earth, and that's actually where we are heading. So when we're looking at the new creation, I think we should, um, I think we should keep our eyes fixed upon that. Now, there's an awful lot that we could be distracted by, all of the problems in the world. It gets us down. Does it get you down? when you see what's happening in our world, uh, but actually we must keep our eyes fixed on that celestial city. But not pie in the sky, but steak on the plate while we wait. Is that right? Not pie in the sky when we die, steak on the plate while we wait. Heaven is a place on earth. If we 
are um, working towards it. In fact, um, I've, I've given Dilla a task, actually, bless you, Dilla, to look at Romans 8. And in that passage, it says, creation groans in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. The creation itself is groaning, waiting for us to be involved in its redemption. We don't redeem it. Jesus does, but he uses us, doesn't he? His disciples. So there we go. I think I've given you quite a lot to think about today.